The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. First Samuel 30, an episode from the life of David we want to look at tonight, an episode that has always meant a lot to me and it's been something that I've meditated on. David at this point has been anointed king years before this by the prophet Samuel. He has had his famous episode and his encounter with Goliath, and he's been on the run for years from King Saul. Most of you know the story well. And unknown to David, known to us, he's about to become king. This is is the very end of his wilderness wanderings, we might say. So we pick up the story. David has been living in the land of the Philistines for a time. I believe that's been an unbelieving act of his. He's led his 600 uh, men into the Philistine Dominion, and he's been um, deceiving them about who he's really been attacking in his expeditions. And he's sought to go with the Philistines in their battle against King Saul, the battle at which King Saul and his son Jonathan will be killed. But the other Philistine lords reject him, and they don't want him with them, and rightly so, because they're afraid that he's going to betray them in the heat of the battle. So David. Uh, and his men are returning to their little city, their town called Ziklag, which is in Philistine territory. And we pick up the story, 1 Samuel 30 at verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. 
They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Carathites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold... They were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. This is God's word. I'll conclude as we read and as we study this. David finds strength in the Lord his God. Quite a story, isn't it? We know the ending of the story. We know what happens at the end, so it's different for us as we read these kind of things. It's like Deb and Doug sharing their story, and we know that Doug's standing there in the aisle of the church. He must be fine. It's a great way to hear a story. Captain James Riley of the Connecticut merchant ship that had, that had about a crew of 14 was shipwrecked in 1815 off the coast of Western Sahara, what is now under Morocco. And in the strong rip currents not far from the Canary Islands, he and his crew were shipwrecked, and their ship was eventually dashed pieces on the rocks. But they were saved and in their longboats for quite a period of time, for a matter of a week or two. Finally, they miraculously, and in the mind of all the crew, providentially made it over great waves and landed on this little beach that they found there, surrounded by sheer cliffs. And Captain Riley had them trying to dig a well at the very back of that beach. And as they did that, he made his way up these steep cliffs and finally got to the top. And he records his consternation when he sees nothing but solid rock as far as the eye could see. Nothing but the hard pan of Sahara Africa. Usually we think of sand and sand dunes of the Sahara. This is just solid rock. And he looks out and he falls on his knees and he cries out because he is in complete despair of ever living through this experience. Well, the fact that we know about that shows you that he did live through it. He and his crewmates were captured by 
nomads in the next day or two who were in the area, and they spent four harrowing months in captivity during that time. And Captain Riley, who was about 240 pounds at the beginning of this time, was 90 pounds when he was ransomed by the British consul in Morocco at the end of these four months. And some of his shipmates, whom, who couldn't even walk at that point, were close to 50 pounds. This is the kind of experience they had. But imagining his despair of seeing the hard pan of, of the Saharan African with not even a, a, a blade of grass growing, that's the kind of despair that you think of when you read about David and his men and their response in verse 4 when they come back to Ziklag and everything's gone. Their little town is burned to the ground. They know that it was probably Amalekites or some other group like that who've come and taken into captivity or killed all their loved ones, taken all that they had, and they just wear themselves out weeping. And this is the context that we read about what David's response is. And it's instructive for us to think about when we are overwhelmed, when we are confronted with a circumstance that's certainly far beyond our ability to bear, how are we to respond? And what does God's word say to us? I want us to just see a couple points tonight from our text. The first is this. When David was overwhelmed, he found comfort and strength in God. And this is, in some ways, the foremost point. We see it at the end of verse 6. It says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. When he and his 600 men returned, their first response was to weep. But that's not necessarily the only response to something like this, and we know how anger can easily burn in our hearts and can lash out at anyone or anything when something's gone wrong in our lives. And we see that even as David and his men are greatly distressed, there arises this talk among the men. We see it at the beginning of verse 6. The people, the men spoke of stoning him because they were bitter in soul. So there was mutiny brewing as well. And David didn't even know if he was going to live to be able to try to attempt to get his loved ones back. The thing is, we're picking up the story here in chapter 30, but as I mentioned briefly as I introduced this text, David had been facing overwhelming hardship for years. He had been fleeing from the king and his armies for years. Here was the man who had been anointed by Samuel as the future king. Not everyone knew that. It was a secret thing at the beginning. But I'm sure it was difficult for David to know and to understand, Lord, what are you doing in my life? It seemed that he would be out of the frying and into the fire over and over again. And here, the supreme case of that, his wife, his wives, his two wives, and his children gone, his men, mutinous, And the question that must have been burning in his mind is, how could David be God's chosen king and be suffering like this? It just didn't seem 
Right, indeed, David was a suffering servant, prefiguring the suffering, the greater suffering servant to come. So God's special servant is overwhelmed with trouble. And this may happen to any of us. The Bible is very realistic. The Bible is truthful. And the reality is that you may experience more than you think you can endure. That's true for all of us. But the Bible also makes it very clear that God's people can fully trust their faithful God, even in such a time as this. We rejoice what Deb and Doug shared with us, but even if Deb had stood up and Doug wasn't by her side, and even if the outcome had been ten times worse than the doctors originally said, we could have still stood up here and sang the doxology because God is always good and God is always wise. David here is truly in the pit. And I think the turning point of this text is verse 6. You could say the turning point in the pit when we read this incredible statement that, that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Notice that this isn't merely a pouring out of his grief. That's certainly right and good and fine. It's not blaming others as the men did and and turning our anger on someone else. What does this mean? It doesn't say much about this, but we have some clues. The first uh, sub-point here, I'm still on the main point. David comforted himself in God. Notice that this means, in some sense, it's clear that David was seeking God as his God. The the text is emphatic in that sense, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. It doesn't end with the Lord. It could have just ended in the Lord, and it would have well said that, but it was this sense of the Lord, his God. Alexander McLaren, a famous preacher, said, David could no longer say, my house my city, or my possessions, but he could say, my God. It was his God. It reminds me of Galatians 2.22 when, when Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Very personal, a very personalizing of the promises of God for himself. Finding strength in God is not merely a matter of being able to recite a creed in that sense. It's not mere abstract theology. It's very personal, and it's taking God and seeking him personally, finding refuge personally in God. It's a very personal exercise of faith, and that's what David did. We might speculate beyond that that part of this And it's not complete speculation because it's grounded in other texts and other psalms. But David, I'm sure, strengthened himself in the Lord his God by remembering the promises of God for him. Here is the one who had been anointed by God. And we know God's promises do not fail. David, similar language to this, being strengthened in God, is used in chapter 23, verse 16. I'm not going to turn there, but that's the, the occasion that Jonathan, Saul's son, visits David. And 
it says that he strengthened David's hand in God. And part of the way he did that was Jonathan reminded David and declared to him, my father, Saul, will not kill you, will not find you. You will surely reign over Israel. So there we have Jonathan strengthening David in his God by this assertion of the promise of God that it will come to pass. So I think there's grounds for us to say one of the clearest ways that you and I strengthen ourselves is by remembering the promises of God and holding them as true for us because God stands behind them. You and I must find strength in God by remembering his promises to us, but also strengthening himself by means of access to God's presence. Notice verses 7 and 8. We find that David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, and he asked whether he should pursue them, and he says he should. This is something that David hadn't done for some time. He hadn't asked for the ephod to seek the Lord in guidance since chapter 23. Since the beginning of chapter 23, it's been a long time. David had, in a sense, strayed from God for a time. And here he recovers himself and he seeks guidance. He seeks guidance through the appointed means of guidance that God had given at that time through Abiathar the priest and through the ephod, this kind of this Urim and Thummim that was used in the ephod. And for you and me, I think we can bear the comparison that we have a much better priest, don't we? And in this whole sense of we need to use the means of access to God's presence that he has given us through Jesus, our great high priest. And it reminds me of Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 14 when the writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. David was doing that in a very practical sense. And it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive grace and find mercy to help in time of need. And so, as David comforted himself, strengthened himself, and the Lord his God, by remembering the promises of God, by personally seeking God, by taking and using the means of access to the very presence of God, so we are to do as well. And who knows when one of us is not going to have the same kind of circumstance that Doug and Deb experienced just a few months ago, that that we're going to be called upon in a special way, and God's grace is going to be real to us, and we're going to say, Lord, it's your promises that do not fail that hold me up in such a time as that. The second point we see here is when David was overwhelmed, God was providentially leading him all the way. When David was overwhelmed, God was providentially leading him all the way. And we're at a better vantage point, of course, to see this than David was. It's always obvious in hindsight. But we see that this is right before God is going to raise him up to be king Saul is going to be dying in the battlefield the Philistines are having at this very time when David is returning to Ziklag. 
and, and David is going to become king. But look at this story. David and his men mourning, grieving. David finding strength in the Lord. They consult the high priest. They um, get guidance from him. Yes, follow after them. And so they just begin to follow the will of God. They're following. And this is a nomadic group, these Amalekites. They're not in any particular place. Apparently, this Egyptian slave who was abandoned by them knew where they were at that time. But it's not easy to find nomads. You don't automatically know where they're going to be. It's not like they're in a certain city or town. They set off to do this. And what we see here is a picture, is is an example of the amazing providence of God, isn't it? That we know that God rules over all. And would that Amalekite who was the master of the slave, have ever guessed that it was going to be his casting aside of this insignificant slave that was going to be the very undoing of the whole group, the whole mercenary tribe of them? No. But we find that David and his men find this Egyptian in the open field, and, and they, he can't even speak yet. He's so weakened by going without water or food for three days. And so instead of being harsh to him, They nurse him back to health. They even give him these cakes of figs and two clusters of raisins. They're kind to him. He basically says, if you will not kill me or give me back to my master, the Amalekite, I'll tell you where they are. And he does. This very insignificant person on the stage of history is used by God. And as a result of that, David and his men overtake the Amalekites and they destroy them. God is at work even through the cruel actions of this Amalekite Lord. As David experienced the providential leading of God, you and I know that he is at work in that same way in our lives. And part of the comfort that God gives us, and we heard in the testimony tonight, one of the great comforts of God's word and of his dealings with us is that we know that he is sovereignly working in every circumstance of our lives. That a sparrow does not fall apart from the will of our Father. And certainly, we know that we can trust him with our lives. The hymn that we read and sang earlier, Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. What a picture of God's providence in our lives. But thirdly, we see that when David was overwhelmed, his gracious character becomes evident. When David was overwhelmed, his gracious character becomes evident. The thing about trials in our lives is this. Trials reveal our hearts. When the pressure and the stresses of trials come, they expose and reveal what's inside of us. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I take a glass of water and fill it up and bump it, whatever is inside of it is going to come out of it. If the water is sweet, it's sweet water that comes out of it. If the water is mucky and dirty, it's mucky water that's going to come out of it. The key is not whether or not the cup is bumped. The key is what's in it to begin with. So when our lives are bumped, so to speak, by some hardship or some trial, What's going to determine what comes out? Well, it's what's inside that comes out. And David is the man after God's own heart. 
He's a man of faith. He is a man that has been schooled through many years of adversity in the school of character building. And we see him throughout this event. We see him when they come back to Ziklag and David and his men weeping till they can't weep anymore. And then it's at that moment that the men are mutinous. And you just imagine a warrior-like man like David uh, who, who might have been tempted to take matters into his own hands and respond in kind to them and, and become angry and, and be vengeful against them. You don't see any of that. He is self-controlled in the way he responds. He's gentle. He's kind to this Egyptian. And then we didn't read it all, but then when they come back in verse 21 to the 200 men who had been too exhausted. They had left. 200 of the 600 men had been left at this brook. And in verse 21, they return to the brook and they come out to greet them. And verse 22 tells us that all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. In other words, these men were saying, the men who didn't go along, they're not going to get anything of the spoils. They're not even going to get their original possession returned to them, only their wife and their kids. But David said, verse 23, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord had given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. And he goes on to argue that those who were left behind will get just the same share as those who fought. Character flows out of a true experience of God's grace. And David is declaring the grace of God when he says, You shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us. David has this strong sense that this victory was certainly of the Lord. That the fact that their women, their wives, and children are alive, that is from the Lord. The fact that they were able to recover all the possessions, this is all from the Lord. It's from God. It's all from Him. He would be able to say with the apostle in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you did not receive? That's a gracious mindset. That's a view that says all that I have is from God. It keeps us from pride. It keeps us from self-centeredness. As we see such a godly character in David's life, it ought to cause us to cry out to God for him to reveal our hearts. We're certainly on the pathway of growth in Christ-likeness. To cry out to reveal our hearts, to show us Jesus Christ anew, to show us a new sense of the grace of God to us. I'm sure that this was a deeply humbling experience. David and all his scheming and all his planning and going to live among the Philistines, it it all did not work. It all exploded in his face. And he was left in utter reliance on the grace of God. And so he's able to be gracious to those around him. When we're overwhelmed, our character is revealed. But finally, David's loss resulted in triumph for God. This just isn't a a story about David and what happened to him as if he's just an ordinary individual. This is a story about the kingdom of God in conflict with the kingdom of darkness. David is the servant of God. And this triumph 
And by the way, there is great emphasis in the text in verse 19 about the fact that they did recover all. It's emphatic about that. And then in verse 26, David refers to it as he gives these spoils to the various elders of Judah. He says, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. This isn't just an ordinary battle between warring tribes. This is a battle that reflects that deeper and higher battle of the kingdom of God advancing in the world. And this is a victory in this greater war. David's loss resulted in a triumph, not just for himself, but it was unto the glory of God. And isn't that why we can tell our stories of prayer and praise? And we can encourage one another because really our stories that we tell about God being at work in our lives are part of the bigger story about God's kingdom advancing. And we know that that's the truth, that we are part of his wider work, his deeper work in this world. And so our lives are to be to the glory of Jesus Christ, our great prince, the leader of the church, militant and finally triumphant. How may God be at work in the sufferings of your life? I don't know how the story of your suffering is going to turn out, whether it'll be something that you can stand here and and we'll all just be so happy because things worked out so well in our perspective, or whether it's in deep loss and sorrow, and yet we can know God is still on the throne. Captain James Riley spent those four months in the Sahara, harrowing circumstances beyond belief, really, to think that they hardly had anything to drink the whole time that they were there, and certainly not anything to eat to speak of, and finally ransomed, and uh, finally back to the United States. And he wrote a book about his, his experiences. It was called Sufferings in Africa. It's still in print. You can get it now. I have one at home. And it was one of Abraham Lincoln's six favorite books as a boy. And James Riley became a very powerful advocate against slavery. And it was a best-selling book. It sold almost a million copies in the young United States. Everybody read that book. And James Riley was certainly someone who could speak from experience about the horrors of the slavery that he experienced those months. You just don't know how God is going to use the suffering you endure. Let us rest in him and trust in him. To him be the glory. Father, we thank you that there may be times when we are overwhelmed, but that we can find strength in you, our Lord, our God. We thank you that your word is true and always to be trusted in. We thank you that your providences are right and good and that we can rest in your plan for each one of us. We ask that you would help us to do that. And if anyone is here who hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, as the one who rescues them, we pray that you would help such a one even this evening to come to grips with who you are in your grace and might and holiness and love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.